We have a special guest this morning who's going to be bringing the message, and uh, he's been speaking for over 30 years uh, to various clients, uh, Fortune 500 companies such as uh, Chrysler, Microsoft, uh, Walt Disney, Ford Motor Company, um, just a, uh, somebody who's been traveling for a number of years, actually has authored or been a ghostwriter for three dozen books, uh, The Shortlist, The Promise of a Second Wind, another book that you'll hear more about later as you get a chance to meet him, called Everyday Influence, and um, some, just uh, a breadth of experience. I'm looking forward to hearing uh, this morning. Uh, please welcome Mr. Bill Butterworth. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Well, good morning, everyone. It truly is a delight to be with you. I've had a great morning already in the other services, and uh, I, I just am really pleased to uh, have the invitation. Todd and I go way back uh, in our friendship, and uh, best demonstrated by the fact that he's not even here today. So um, <laughs> he's a trusting soul, isn't he? Uh, I also apologize in advance. My wife is not with me today. Everyone's, of course, always wanting to meet uh, Mrs. Butterworth, and so um, uh, we'll see if I can get invited back, and I'll bring her with me next time. You'll love her, as you would imagine. Uh, she's sweet. So um, I, I'm, I'm excited about the series you're in. You're talking about family life, and um, uh, today, if I can, if I can use good old-fashioned Southern California movie talk, I, I want to kind of pull the camera back a, uh, a little bit and instead of focusing exclusively on just your immediate family, I uh, want to pull it back a little bit and talk about family in a bit of a broader context. But, but let me ease into this so you know what's going on. Let me begin uh, with a little personal story. Um, I, I was in a graduate class years ago on leadership, and the profs like to divide you into small groups or do a little neighbor nudge or something to you know, break up the monotony of a lecture. And um, I remember that, that he said, get into a small group and your assignment is to define leadership using the fewest amount of words. Define leadership using the fewest amount of words. Now, this was years ago before this actually became kind of cliche like it is today. I'm not saying we coined it, but we came up with three words. Leadership is influence. And I still really like that. I mean, in its, in its purest, most boiled down uh, form, leadership is simply someone influencing another person. But there's something about that definition I don't like, and that is if someone would erroneously conclude that only leaders influence. We all inter, uh, influence if you are not the owner or the CEO of your company, your middle manager or your front line, you are every bit as influential as the person at the top of the organizational chart. Uh, you don't have to be the president of the neighborhood association to be influential in your neighborhood. Uh, you don't have to be, you know, uh, the mom or dad in the family. You can be just a kid and have an incredible influence in your family. Every one of us influence one another. It, it's very thoroughly biblical. And to illustrate that, let me create a metaphor for you, and then we'll look at the actual Bible verses that I'm referring to. I've been in California now since 1980, a long time, but I grew up back east. I grew up in Philadelphia, 
And uh, my dad, good, solid, blue-collar family with raising a baby boomer. My dad was very old school, best illustrated by when I was a senior in college. He said to me, son, you need to go to college. I hope you'll be able to afford it. So fortunately, God had gotten a hold of my life between the summer of my junior and senior year, and I felt really called to ministry. I found in Miami, Florida, a little Bible college that was tailor-made for people who had a dad like mine. Because all the classes were real early in the morning, and then you had all day to work for a living so you could pay your school bill. And I had the most bizarre uh, display of jobs while I was in Bible college in Miami. First job, just to prove to you how dumb I am, in Miami, I went to work at a Quaker State motor oil warehouse where my job was to unload 50-gallon drums of motor oil out of boxcars. Now, this is all code for a boxcar would typically be about 745 degrees in Miami. It was killer. I, it was the worst job I ever had, thus the worst 48 hours I ever had. So, <laughs> got out of that, went to work for 7-Eleven. I started making the... Uh, pre-made shrink-wrapped sandwiches for 7-Eleven. Now, I'm not saying anything, but I have never had one of those sandwiches ever since that experience at 7-Eleven, all right? But the one I really want you to hear is I went to work for, the easiest way to explain it, I went to work for a wallet factory. We made wallets. Now, before you think of beautiful Corinthian leather, hand-sewn Gucci I'm talking the polar opposite. I'm talking about two pieces of vinyl weren't even sewed together. They were put through what they called a heat seal machine. And the heat seal guaranteed your wallet would stay together for at least two days. And we would sell this schlock to tourist traps in Miami. I mean, this is old. This is way before Disney even was in Florida. We would sell it to Monkey Jungle and Parrot Jungle. And Miami Seaquarium, this schlocky vinyl wallet with a fake gold stamp of a parrot or a monkey or a dolphin, all right? It was crazy work, all right? And I worked in step one. I worked at a table that was with a machine on top of it, and it was a long, narrow table, almost like this center aisle. And all the way at the back of the table was a big roll of this vinyl. And I would go down there and I would pull it all the way up to under this machine, go back there, and with a blade cutter, cut it. And then I would pull a second sheet on top of the first sheet, cut that. Do it about 20 times. I have about 20 thicknesses of vinyl. And it was under this machine, and the easiest way to describe this machine, it was a big steel plate with two red buttons above it, above it so you couldn't hurt yourself. If you hit those two red buttons, that steel plate slammed down on that table with the vinyl. Now, we're only missing one more element. And that was, we needed what they called a die. And a die was a piece of wood, kind of in the shape of a rectangle, with a piece of metal surrounding it that was a, a blade on one side. It actually, the die looked in size just about like my Bible. It was about that thick that rectangular. And what you would do is you would place the die over the 20 pieces of vinyl, hit the buttons, and the steel would come down and drive that die 
through the 20 pieces of vinyl. Now you had 20 rectangles that would go to step two, the heat seal machine, where it would begin its two days of enjoyment before it fell apart. Okay? It was the most boring job I've ever had in my life. I mean, think about it. All I did all day was bump, bump, bump. Bump. I mean, just over and over. The length, and then we'd cut it all over again. It was terribly boring. God, in His grace, blessed me with two of the most incredible characters on either side of me. Bart and Izzy. Bart and Izzy. Bart. Easiest way to describe Bart, I just have to be frank. He's the largest human being I've ever met in my life. 400 pounds if he was a pound. Every pound of it due to the true love of his life, beer. A confirmed bachelor, as soon as the five o'clock whistle would blow, Bart was in the tavern for the rest of the evening. It was crazy. Izzy, on the other hand, was the polar opposite. Just a little wisp of a guy, barely a hundred pounds, little crop of silver gray hair, just waiting to retire, big black glasses. Most distinguishing characteristic is Izzy wore false teeth. Actually, I should be clear. Izzy had false teeth. He kept them in his pocket of his pants, wrapped in wax paper, for those moments that would cause him to need teeth. Now this, I found, was odd. And you may wear false teeth. I mean no disrespect. But you have to admit, you have some quirks that, that happen. And, and one is, when people don't have their false teeth in, there's this natural tendency to just kind of gum things. And Izzy, just for hours, would sit there and go, um, yum, 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 yum. I mean, it was thoroughly entertaining with Bart on one side and Izzy on the other. To make it even more entertaining, Bart's goal had always been to get Izzy to go with him to the tavern one night. And Izzy would never go. He remained strong. I will not go until the fateful night. I don't know why he gave in, but he went with Bart. And I heard the story the next day. And I learned a very important lesson that Izzy had to learn the hard way. A 100-pound man cannot keep up with a 400-pound man when it comes to drinking beer. He, Izzy, was wasted from early on. Somehow Bart got him home, and Izzy showed up for work the next day. I've never seen him such a mess. I mean, his hair was all disheveled, his eyes were crossed, he had his teeth in a different pocket. I mean, everything was just upside down with Izzy. And somehow, he managed to get his 20 pieces of vinyl out, and he stabled them all together, and he went to his machine, and he grabbed his die, and he was ready to make the first cut. And this is where he made his big mistake. He had the die, but he had the die upside down. And he put the die under the steel, and the steel plate came down and took that perfectly rectangular shape into kind of a Vincent van Gogh modern art piece of rectangle. It was terrible. Izzy immediately saw his mistake and decided, well, I'm not going to let that happen again, to which he turned the die over and started cutting the vinyl with this new, crazy, freeform shape. That's how out of it he was. Very historic day at the Wallet Factory. We refer to it as the day Izzy became the janitor. 
Now, believe it or not, I tell you that whole story because it illustrates the biblical truth that I want you to understand this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, look at verse 3. In 1 Peter 5, 3, Peter says, not yet as lording it over those allotted in your charge, but prove to be examples to the flock. Examples to the flock. If you're comfortable underlining and circling in your Bible, circle the word example. And let me, let me share with you what the Greek word is that's translated example. You'll always remember it because it sounds like a word that we like here in English. The Greek word is tupon. Tupon rhymes with coupon. Okay? T-U-P-O-N, English spelling. The, the full definition of tupon is the mark of a blow or a stamp struck by a die. We are to be tupons of the flock. We are to be the die, whether perfectly rectangular or all disjointed like Izzy's, we are impacting the people that are around us in a very powerful way. We are two pots. Now, it is a very strong word in the Greek. If you have your outlines out, you'll notice that I, I followed it with John chapter 20, verse 25, which is a familiar verse in that it's the verse where the disciple Thomas gets his nickname, Doubting Thomas. In John 20, 25, the other disciples were saying to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I shall see in his hands the imprint of the nails, put my finger into the place of the nails, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thus, the nickname, Doubting Thomas. But it's that first phrase there when he says, unless I shall see in his hands the imprint of the nails. Imprint is the word tupon. Unless I see the impact steel makes on flesh, I will not believe that that's truly the Lord Jesus. Very powerful word. And then one more time where it appears, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, where he tells the Thessalonians, you are examples among your church. And so that says to me, all of us, no matter whether we are in a leadership position or a non-leadership position. We are all called upon to be a Tupon, an impact person. I go through that whole story about Izzy and the die. When my wife is here, she says, Honey, why don't you just tell people they are cookie cutters? Cutting through the dough to make the Christmas cookies, right? It's the impact. It's the imprint of that cookie cutter that gives the shape of the star or the Christmas tree or the angel, you are impacting the dough by the cookie cutter. Well, that's a fairly easy sell, I think. Most of us are mature enough to understand we are tupons in our immediate world. I want to spend the, the bulk of my time, though, answering the question, how do we do that in a good way, a godly way? How are we a positive influence every day. And to do that, we're going to turn in a minute to look at a very classic passage uh, on uh, the role of uh, the parents in the life of their kids. 
But this is where I want to emphasize again. Uh, we're going to look at a passage I know Todd has already looked at a couple weeks ago. But I want you to look at it again with fresh eyes because I, I want to expand the horizon a little bit. That everyday influence is bigger than just your immediate family. I know that's what the primary text is going to be, but it's bigger than your immediate family. Think about the influence that happens in your immediate family by your neighbors or by your coworkers or by people that are on the same Little League team or whatever. I want to focus for just a few minutes today on the bigger family that we would call our church family. Think about the people that are in this building, in this body of Christ, that influence your immediate family. Kids Sunday school leaders, students small group leaders, kids and student ministries pastors, people in home Bible studies, all the people that you in, uh, are seeing throughout the week here in the church that are also influential people every day in their lives. We want to honor them and realize that they are doing great service to our immediate family by doing all that they do. Now with that said, I invite you to back to an Old Testament, the classic Old Testament passage, Deuteronomy chapter 6, where it talks about uh, the everyday influence that we have uh, to those that are around us. Deuteronomy chapter 6, I want to zero in on verse 7. Deuteronomy 6 verse 7 says, You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Again, Todd went through this a few weeks ago, but let's start at the end and work our way back. The first thing we know about everyday influence is that it's 24-7, okay? It's not just the couple hours every day where you feel strong and positive and the desire to be influential to those around you. It happens all the time, whether we realize it or not. Uh, the older I get, the more of an issue that becomes. For years, I would always say to my wife, for example, well, you know, I'm a... I'm a early riser. I'm a morning guy. I mean, don't, don't try to give me important decisions to make after dinner because I'm, I'm starting to lose my edge by then. Let's talk about it early in the morning. And this has always been interesting because she's more of a night owl. And so we've had this that we've had to work through in our marriage. However, now that I've gotten older, I am no longer the big morning guy. The problem is I'm also not the night owl. You know, I got like a couple of good hours around lunch and that's it. Well, this text tells me that God is not saying, hey, big guy, go for it between 12 and 2, and I'll cover for you the other 22. No, God is saying, you're out there, guy. You are influencing 24-7. You, you've got to be aware of that, okay? Now, where I really want to focus is the two simple verbs in the beginning of verse 7. In my translation, it says, you shall teach them diligently, teach is the first one, and you shall talk of them, talk is the second one, okay? You have a couple of points that I make on the printed outline, and uh, in a very uh, unorthodox way to present a message, I want to do points one and two simultaneously, at the same time. When's the last time you heard that? And in doing so, I want you to see the difference between those two verbs, okay? 
Point number one on your outline says, everyday influence occurs when I take time to teach. Okay, that's that first verb. You shall teach them diligently. It's the more formal of the two. It is the literal verbal, oral participation to the people that you are trying to influence. It is you saying out loud, these are things that are important to me and I want you to understand them from my voice. Okay? Point number two is the opposite and that's where the use of the word talk is unfortunate because it just isn't the proper translation. Point number two is everyday influence occurs not only by my words but by my actions. The Hebrew word that's translated talk would be better translated to use a more uh, current uh, cliche. It's talking about doing life together, sharing life. I I use as a contrast with with a little bit of, of humor. Some of you look back on your parents, for example. Some of you had a mom or a dad who are more teach oriented. It's your dad who said, bring a notebook to dinner tonight. I have a few comments I'd like you to jot down. Okay? And then others of us had a mom or a dad that were quite the opposite. A dad who would say, I don't know what that guy's talking about. But kids, if we hurry up and eat and clear the table and do the dishes, let's go out and shoot hoops until it gets dark. Okay? That's the sharing life kind of side of this as opposed to the teaching side of it. Um, If you look at our culture right now, this is very unscientific and anecdotal, but we are much more share life together these days than we are teaching. But I would remind you that this is not presented in Deuteronomy as kind of an either or. Well, you're one or the other, just kind of go with it. No, we're asked to do this to both. Uh, The metaphor would be influence is a coin. It's two sides. There's the side of teaching. There's the side of sharing life together. Now, it's interesting. Um, It was mentioned in the intro. I I do a lot of ghost writing. I write books for other people, thus the the chalky complexion. And um, part of of one of the projects, this guy gave me an assignment to go out and, and talk to men. And one of the questions that I was to ask a man was, what was the best day you ever had with your dad? Best day you ever had with your dad. Well, I can assure you, there were very few who said, it was the day my dad brought a notebook to dinner. Just doesn't seem to fly in our culture. No, the top three answers were share life answers. Top answer, the day my dad took me to a ball game. Second, the day my dad took me fishing. Third, the day my dad took me hunting. Okay? And I got to hear this so much, I decided to be a little sarcastic with some of these guys. And they'd say, oh, the day my dad took me to a ball game. And I'd immediately follow up with, oh, yeah, you and your dad must have had amazing conversations at that ball game. And he'd look at me like I was, what? We didn't say a word. My dad never spoke. Then he paused for a second. He said, well, you know, he stood up at the seventh inning and he said things to the umpire. I've never heard my dad say... (laughs) But it wasn't the teaching kind of side of it. Interesting, isn't it? Now, as a contrast, this is a well-worn story. Forgive me if you've heard it more than once. But back in the 1700s, uh, James Boswell, the famous biographer of Samuel Johnson, okay, was asked the very same question. What was the best day you ever had with your dad? He didn't even have to think. 
right off the top of his head, the day my dad took me fishing. And he stayed with that answer his entire adult life. And his friends got tired of hearing it. And as the story goes, eventually, James Boswell's father passes away. And they all kept diaries and journals back then. And so they couldn't wait to get into the dad's journal to find out what did he think about the day that his son called the very best day they ever had. And it is intriguing. They found the date. They opened it up. It was a very brief journal entry. It said, took my son fishing, dash, a wasted day. Isn't that amazing? But you think about it. Back then, that was less important than teaching verbally your kids. Boswell's father must have thought of, you know, I had so much that I wanted to say to my son that day, but we were fishing. I have to be quiet or I'll spook the fish. And so I had to be quiet instead of all the things I wanted to communicate to him. It was a waste. Isn't that intriguing how the pendulum kind of goes back and forth? But the key for us is that we got to break through the pendulum. We have to understand we need both sides of the coin. So if you are by nature more of a, hey, I do life together, you need to become intentional to those that are around you, teaching them, verbally saying, this is what's important to me. And you need to do it right away. Okay? So that's point number one, that they are teaching to, in order to be an everyday influence. Now, what's, let's suppose you are good on the teaching side, but you need a little help on the share life together. All right? Point two. Uh, I, I can relate from the fact that I wanted my kids to really understand what I truly believed about ministry and that ministry was a high calling and that it was a good thing and it could even be fun. Um, I got married while I was in Miami. We started having all our kids. We have five kids. In 1980, I met a wonderful man who became my mentor and hired me. Uh, his name was Chuck Swindoll. And he moved the whole family from South Florida to Southern California to work at this brand new fledgling radio ministry called Insight for Living. And I was like a kid in a candy store. I just loved this because Chuck to this day is such a model to me of the, the freedom of God's grace as opposed to the pressure of legalism and living under the law. And so it was such a liberating thing uh, to work with Chuck. And I remember... Um, it was like a, a September, and we had our manager's meeting at Insight for Living, and one of the VPs brought up, you know, the, the, or, the, the organization is growing so large, we're kind of becoming disconnected. You know, the people over in the warehouse don't really know what's going on with the, the people that are in the counseling department. And, and the, the people who open all the mail don't have any idea of what's going on by the people who uh, keep the books. And, you know, one of the other VPs said, well, I know what we need, and it'll bring us all together. He said, well, what is it? He said, well, it's September. Football just started. We need an Insight for Living NFL football poll. And we all went, yeah, what is it? He said, well, here's what we're going to do. This is before uh, midweek games. It was all Sunday and then one on Monday night. Every Friday, we're going to give everybody all the games that are going to be played on the weekend. And no point spreads, no money, just simply straight up. The Bears are playing the Packers. Circle the team you think is going to win. 
the Giants are playing the Broncos. Circle the team. And at the end of the whole season, we will count up, and whoever has the most wins will be the Insight for Living NFL Football Poll Champion. We thought, it's great. Let's give a prize. What should the prize be? How about knowing that you are the Insight for Living NFL Football Champion? It was perfect. There wasn't even any budget involved. So I got so excited, and I love football, and I was trying to compete, and I was trying, and I'd come home every night and tell my little kids, because this is what they need to see. Ministry is good. Ministry is joyful. Ministry is fun. And I'd wail on it every night, and finally they had enough, and they said, stop, stop telling us about all the fun you're having at work. I said, what's wrong with you? They said, we want you to have fun here at home with us. Ooh, ooh, what does that mean? We want a family football poll. And my kids were little. I mean, I have a daughter and four sons. My daughter picked the teams based on the color of their uniforms. And when she won that year, the boys and I were just embarrassed beyond belief. I'm dumb, but I'm not stupid. The smartest thing I did, I went to the trophy store and I bought one of those perpetual plaques and we had engraved at the top, Butterworth Family NFL Football Pole. And if you won that year, you'd get a brass plate with your first name, Joy, and the year that we started. And we'd go down the plaque. Do you know we're still doing it? We're on the third plaque. I have 11 grandchildren. I've got a granddaughter who picks the teams based on the colors of the uniforms. I'm going to leave it right there. Okay, honestly though, is there a verse in the Bible that says, Thou shalt have an NFL football poll in thy family? No. But I'm just trying to offer a way that we figured out how to share life together. And i got to tell you, there's more to this story. Our family, I'm sure, is just like yours. We've had plenty of bumps along the way. When um, one of my sons graduated high school, The day he went off to college, he pulled me aside and he said, this is a perfect time to do this, Dad. Um, I don't want to talk to you anymore and I don't want you to talk to me. And so I'm going away. Don't try to get a hold of me. I'm not going to talk to you. Goodbye. And he left. And it broke my heart that I couldn't have any contact with my son. And it stayed that way. Until football season. And this is old school. This is before email and texts and so If you wanted to be a part of this football poll, you had to call me on a landline. Ask your grandparents what that is. A landline Saturday night to give me your picks. And he couldn't resist. He called me every Saturday night. But that's all he did. I can still remember. Hello. Dolphins. Packers. Chiefs. Cowboys. And then he'd hang up. But there were a couple of times he must have forgot that we weren't speaking. Because he gave me about two minutes after each of the picks about what was going on. Then he caught himself and he hung up. If you've ever been distanced from a loved one, you know those two minutes were golden, right? Well, he's back. He's Better than ever. He's the world's most talkative child. Now I have to hang up on the guy. He just talks my ear off on, on the cell phone. So it has a happy ending. But boy, the value of sharing life together 
was pretty amazing. So those first two points are really significant. Take time to teach, and it's not just your words, but it's your actions. Let me wrap it up with this third and final point, and that is everyday influence occurs in the simplest of ways. Everyday influence occurs in the simplest of ways. And I have this wonderful verse in Genesis that I've lifted from the good old original King James version of the Bible. Now, I grew up in church. I grew up with a pastor who would say, you know, if the King James version was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for us. And so I learned a lot of my Bible in the old King James. And I will freely admit, I am kind of pulling this way out of the context of the story. It's Abraham's servant talking about being given a task by Abraham and him fulfilling it. But I just love the turn of the phrase in the middle of this verse that goes like this. I, being in the way, the Lord led me. I, being in the way, the Lord led me. Now, in the way is not how we use it, like, get out of the way, get out of the way. No, the way was like the street. I, being where God wanted me to be, God used me. I, being where God placed me, I influenced people. This room is filled with people that are here today because somebody influenced you. And you think back on your life and you think, where would I be today if it hadn't been for that fourth grade teacher or that seventh grade coach or that summer camp counselor or that youth pastor or that college professor or my uncle or that distant relative. You know, there are people all over that have been that person. And many of them don't even realize it. They were just where God wanted them to be and God used them in a very simple way. You ask me, my very best day with my dad, it's a no-brainer. Thanksgiving Day when I was eight years old. My dad, like I said, good solid blue collar. If you ever played the board game Monopoly, my dad worked on one of the railroads on the Monopoly board, the Reading Railroad, okay? And I can still remember, it was Thanksgiving morning, my mom is zipping up a winter jacket. And she's saying to me, you know, Billy, the railroad works every day of the year. I said, yes, mommy, I know that. So you know, daddy doesn't always get to be with us. Yeah, I know that. She says, well, I got good news. Daddy's worked hard enough and long enough in seniority that he doesn't have to work Christmas anymore. Daddy's going to be home for Christmas. That's great, Mommy. But he does have to work Thanksgiving. Daddy's going to work today. Okay, okay. And guess what? What? Daddy wants to take you to work with him. You'd have thought I won the lottery. I jetted out of that house, got in the front of that 57 Ford, and we drove down to Center City, Philadelphia, took a hard left out to the Delaware River, and I remember spending hours walking the freight yards with my dad as he's making notes about some of the uh, uh, improvements that need to be done on the freight cars. And then we went up to his office, this old brick building. We went into this room where his co-workers had left him a big cloud of cigar smoke, and there was one big desk in the middle and a little desk off to the side. And my dad went to work filling out his reports. To the point he forgot I was with him. I remember I felt like I stood in the door jam for like eight hours. And finally he looked up and he saw me and he pointed over to the little desk like, go over there. I went over to the little desk and saw something I had never seen in person before. I'd seen it on TV. I'd seen it in magazines. Kids, you talk about asking your grandparents about this. It was a typewriter. Typewriter. 
And it was a butte. It was an Underwood manual typewriter. And I'll never forget, Dad put a clean white sheet and rolled it up there. And he looked at me, and with a little wink, he said the phrase I've never forgotten. He said, you may like this. You may like this. I was enthralled. I started typing. I started writing letters. Dear Mommy, I'm at work with Daddy. I'm on a typewriter. I'm having fun. Your son, Billy. You know, I started wearing my way down the neighborhood. Dear Mark, I live next door to you. You don't see me all that much, but I'm wearing... <laughs> the hours flew by. I remember I was working my way through all my third grade classmates. And Dad said, it's time to go. Already? It just flew. I fell in love with the keyboard. Well, you heard, I've done like 40 books. And you know, when I get up every day to write, and I'm now on the great-great-great-grandchild of the manual Underwood, the laptop, <laughs> I think every day, Dad, you have no idea the gift you gave me that day. You might like this. You bet. That's the kind of influence you and I can have on those that are around us every day. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, our prayer is simple. Make us men and women of influence. Make us people who accept it every day and be the kind of person that you want us to be. Help us to be active with our words. Help us to be active with our actions and realize that we just need to be where you want us to be and you will cause something influential to happen. Thanks for all the workers in the church here who just echo what we are trying to teach. We are truly grateful. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.